0: Welcome. My name is Elise Markwam-Johns, and I'd like to thank you for joining us for our November seventh, 2017 edition of Learning Well on EDGE Blog Talk Radio. Our sponsor for Learning Well is the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are so pleased to have Dr. Andrew Chate as our guest this evening. Dr. Chate is a research professor in the Medical School of the University of Arizona and co-author of The Resilience Factor and Equilibrium. He's also the founder. And president of Mindflex, which is a training company that specializes in measuring and training for resilience. Dr. Shata and his former colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania were the first to develop the principles of resilience and apply them to the corporate sector. They identified and defined seven factors of human psychological resilience, a test to measure these traits within individuals called the Resilience Factor Inventory, and the seven skills to enhance them. Most notably, Dr. Chate has determined that resilience is the single greatest predictor of who will succeed and who will not, who will be happy and who will not, in both their professional and personal lives. Dr. Chate will be joining us in just a few moments, but first, I'd like to let you know about some of the guests who will be with us on Learning Well in coming months. Next month, on Tuesday, December 5th, Dr. Wendy Warner will be with us. She's incorporated integrative holistic medicine into her OBGYN practice for many years and actively spends time teaching both patients and other doctors about holistic medicine and nutrition. She has a strong interest in botanicals, energy medicine and is a mass, is also a master reiki practitioner. She's also a former president of the American Board of Integrative Holistic Medicine. And our guest on Tuesday, January 2nd, will be Dr. Kate Rimble. Dr. Rimble has authored a book titled Vitamin K2 and the Calcium Paradox: How a Little-Known Vitamin Could Save Your Life. She contends that without the addition of vitamin K2, the body cannot direct calcium to the bones where it's needed. The book demystifies this obscure supernutrient which is a fat-soluble vitamin that humans once thrived on and which has been ignored by scientists for almost 70 years. And we're delighted that later this year, several other nationally respected leaders in the field of integrative health will also be joining us, including Annie Brandt, who is a survivor of advanced-stage breast cancer. After being diagnosed with breast cancer and metastases to the lymph, brain, and lungs, she was told to get her affairs in order and given three to five months to live. She refused surgery, high-dose chemotherapy, or radiation, and created her own healing platform. She founded the Best Answer for Cancer Foundation in 2006 and authored the book The Healing Platform to help other cancer patients discover their own best answer for cancer. She's co-authored two other books, The Kinder Gentler Cancer Treatment and Celebrating 365 Days of Gratitude. Also joining us, In April 2018 will be Dr. Gail Saltz. Dr. Saltz is a clinical associate professor of psychiatry, a columnist, best-selling author, television commentator, and one of the nation's foremost experts on health issues pertaining to women's emotional well-being and relationships. And I don't want to forget to mention that in May... Dr. Donald Abrams will be our guest. Dr. Dr. Abrams is a cancer integrative medicine specialist at the University of California OSHA Center for integrative medicine at Mount Zion. He provides integrative medicine consultations for cancer patients and has completed research in complementary and alternative therapies, including mind-body treatments, botanical therapies, medical use of marijuana, and traditional Chinese medicine herbal therapies. He's also chief of hematology In Oncology at San Francisco General Hospital. And I want to mention that we've actually pre-recorded that conversation with Dr. Abrams, and I can say that it was one of the most fascinating conversations I think I've ever experienced. So we do hope you'll join us for that particular program. And if you'd like to listen to some of our previous Learning Well programs, you can do so at your convenience since all of our programs are archived. Simply Google Edge Blog Talk Radio Learning Well Archives. And some of our previous guests on Learning Well, whose programs you can access, include Dr. James Gordon, a Harvard-educated psychiatrist and world-renowned expert in using mind-body medicine to heal depression anxiety, as well as psychological trauma, and Dr. Norman Shealy, who has been at the forefront of integrative health for more than three decades, has written 29 books, and is a true innovator in the field of health and wellness. Dr. Shealy also provided some fascinating insights into how we can live healthier and longer. And it's really our hope that tonight's program and all of our Learning Well programs will provide valuable, helpful, and also practical information about a wide variety of integrated and holistic health and wellness options through our interviews with leaders in this field. And as I mentioned earlier, Learning Well is sponsored by the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And if you're interested in learning about traditional or integrative and holistic health, the center offers literally hundreds of classes for individuals and businesses, including classes in such areas as homeopathy, aromatherapy, energy medicine. And healing touch. And if you would like more information on specific classes, please feel free to call the Continuing Education Department at Normandale at 952. 952- 358 8343 to email Normandale at ncal at normandale.edu or simply visit their website at normandale.edu forward slash CE. And now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce this evening's guest, Dr. Andrew Chate. Dr. Chate is founder and president of MindFlex, which is a training company that specializes in measuring and training for resilience. He's in high demand as a speaker and has delivered over 1,000 keynote speeches and addresses to large corporate audiences over the last decade. He's on the faculty of the Institute for Management Studies, where he speaks to large and diverse corporate audiences several times each year, and he's a fellow with the Brookings Institution where he trains high-level executives from the Department of Justice Defense, Homeland Security, the IRS, NASA, the CIA, and all branches of the military. In addition, he's on the faculty of One Day University, presenting on resilience, and is one of their most popular professors. He's also the chief science officer with Mequilibrium, an online stress management company, and was a highly decorated teacher from the University of Pennsylvania's Department of Psychology. As a matter of fact, in 2003, was voted the best professor by students in the School of Arts and Sciences, and in 2006, received the Dean's Award for Distinguished Teaching, a PhD psychologist Dr. Chate received his training at the University of Pennsylvania where he and his colleagues were the first to develop the principles of resilience and apply them to the corporate sector. Most notably, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Chate has determined that resilience is the single greatest predictor of who will succeed and who will not, and who will be happy and who will not in both their professional and personal lives. He's devoted his 25-year career to understanding the psychological aspects of motivation and resilience and to developing programs to operate optimize human performance in various areas such as the workplace, health, academics, as well as sports. He is currently a research professor in the Medical School of the University of Arizona and co-author of The Resilience Factor and also co-authored Mequilibrium, which for those of you who listen to Learning Well regularly, you may recognize the title of that book because Dr. Adam Perlman, who's also a co-author of that book, has been with us several times in the past. Dr. Chate, welcome. so So delighted that you could be with us this evening. Thank you.
1: Elise, thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine.
0: Well, first, I'd like to ask you what triggered your interest in exploring this whole subject of resilience,
1: well, you know, we'd have to go back in a time machine um, to 1984, and I had just graduated from college, my undergraduate degree. Probably noticing an accent, I was born and raised in Australia, and I started out studying law, which is an undergraduate degree in Australia. But apparently, that was too lucrative for me, and I shifted to a degree <laughs> in political science, which was apparently too practical for me. and I ended up graduating with a degree in philosophy and I, I just love the marketability of that degree to settle into the minds of your listeners. Um, in fact, at my graduation party, all my friends and family were gathered and my dad made it the customary speech and said, son, I, I just cannot believe that after so much time and money, you're actually less useful now than you were four years ago. It's a very touching speech. It turns out he was right. I I ended up being unemployed for six months. And then somewhat ironically, I got my very first job in the unemployment office with the Department of Social Security in Australia. And and here's where it all began, because I began to notice that when we interviewed people who'd just been fired or downsized from their jobs, Um, to assess their eligibility for unemployment benefit, the people who were training me were extremely good at being able to predict who, after being fired or downsized, would get up and dust themselves off and get back out there and get a job, and who would not. And it wasn't always readily apparent. They could tell just by listening to these people who was going to be resilient and who was not. And this was fascinating for me. As it turns out, what they were doing was eavesdropping. They were listening into what these people were thinking. Uh, and using that to predict how long they were going to stay down or whether they were going to get up. And that was really what sparked my interest in this concept of resilience, watching some people who had enormous promise, great potential, who should have been back in the job very quickly, crumble and fall, where others who just seemed to be bombarded by adversity remained strong. And so the last 25 years has been really drilling into what makes the difference between person A and person B. Oh, that's fascinating.
0: You know, as you were talking, I couldn't help think about some friends of ours who lost their daughter when she was 15 through an automobile accident. And talking to them, I've heard them talk about the fact that they went through grief counseling, but so many parents end up divorcing after an event like that. And so there's, I guess there's a certain resiliency to relationships as well. But I'm, you know I, i'm so fascinated by this whole concept of how do you know which are these people? how do you tell and how how would you define resilience and and what factors actually make up resilience
1: yeah you know that 's a great question When we first started realizing that we were in the resilience business and this was when we were actually involved, and we can fast forward now probably another eight years or so. And we're now involved in trying to create programs that will prevent depression in kids who are at risk for depression. And we're doing this because um, it had been revealed in 1984 that there was an epidemic of depression. And we were very intrigued and and really wanted to contribute here and see if we could develop a program that would help kids um, stave off that inevitable first bout of depression. And what we began to realize was that we were doing something broader than that with our program. We weren't just preventing depression. We were building resilience. So we went to the field and we said, well, we think we're in the resilience business, but what is that? The field at the time really didn't have great answers. They would say to us, well, you know, it's it's steering through adversity or bouncing back from trauma, as you described with your friend and that horrible incident with their 15-year-old or it's, you know, overcoming obstacles. And, and we nodded gratefully, but what we were really thinking was, you know, that's not what resilience is, that's what resilient people do. And so we really embarked on uh, a journey of can we titrate out the basic ingredients of resilience? And there are many, but we again and again have come to believe that there are seven that are absolutely primary.
0: Okay, well, you know what the next question is going to be. (laughs) Could you share those with us?
1: I absolutely would love to. The the first and probably the first among equals is our ability to regulate our emotions, particularly when we're going through an adversity. So the ability to stay calm. And what we know is that we develop thinking styles, each and every one of us, that really get in the way of that. So the key there, um, just like these folk in the unemployment office all those years ago, is to understand how people think in the adversity and to understand how some subset of those thinking styles can really get in the way of their ability to stay calm. And then factor number two is the ability to stay focused,
0: behaviorally
1: focused. So keep your behavior on track when you're in the midst of an adversity. Number three is just the sheer brute ability to problem solve. And we know that there are thinking styles that get in the way of that as well. And then if we're good problem solvers in the world, we should have a good sense of mastery uh, and self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is factor number four. And that is that that sense that we're going to be able to take care of almost anything that comes our way. And we know that there are certain big belief systems that we call icebergs, and we can talk more about that later if you wish, that really can get in the way of people developing that sense of self-efficacy. And from that should flow optimism, a reality-based optimism. And this is factor number five. It really is that ability to be as positive as one can, but stay in touch with the reality of your circumstances. And then six is empathy. Empathy, just your ability to understand what others are thinking and feeling. And we know that this operates by helping people build a social support network that can buoy them when times are tough. And then finally... Um, The seventh factor is reaching out. When we often think about resilience, we think about how we deal with bad stuff. But resilient people do more than that. They also optimize the good. They seek out challenges. They're constantly pushing the envelope on the positive side of their life. So this idea of reaching out, the willingness and opportunity to take on challenges is the seventh ingredient. All are really important. um, And, you know, we never see anyone who's, who's fully equipped in all.
0: You know, I think when I first encountered that term resilience and started doing some reading about that, the person who sprang into my mind was Kirby Puckett. I don't know if you're familiar with him, a baseball player for the Minnesota Twins for many years, because I knew a little bit about his background, coming from the inner city of Chicago and really difficult, difficult circumstances. And. here he was, making it in the big leagues, being a, a clubhouse leader, and it just, I always thought, now, how did he do that, coming from the environment that he came from? Are some people just simply born with more resilience? Is it genetic? And I guess most importantly, I'm assuming from what you said, most of us can develop more resilience, correct?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely so. And, you know, the genetic contributions here are relatively modest, Um, You know, we do know that kids tend to be, human beings tend to be hardy, and we tend to be resilient um, at birth. We we really have that internal tendency, Uh, and that makes sense. You know, we wouldn't have survived as a species if we didn't have that in spades. Um, but some people do get surrounded by life circumstances. And there was a fabulous, very early study done by two great sociologists, um, Werner and Smith. And one of the studies they did was to study kids who were born into poverty, into, into areas of great domestic violence, physical abuse, their parents. Um, were often struggling themselves with very severe clinical disorders like clinical depression, even psychotic disorders, schizophrenia. They were really... No matter which way you looked at it, these kids were behind the eight ball. And the incredible thing that Werner and Smith found was that the majority of these kids went on to do just fine. And they they described this as magic, but very ordinary because it was so common among these kids. They came up with this idea of ordinary magic. (coughs) What we came to realize was that we are really primed to be resilient, Um, even though there there may be many factors countering that resilience as we grow up. um, If we just have one or two in place, one supporting relationship with an uncle or a teacher, uh, that can be enough um, for that natural resilience to emerge. So we do know a lot about, you know, how people survive these really tough circumstances. Parts of it, Modestly, genetically, and anyone who is a parent will realize this. You know, you, you you as soon as your child is born, you get a sense of their personality, and then you're always struck by how constant this personality um, has been. And I think really in the areas of whether the child is inherently positive or not, um, and whether they are impulse-controlled or not, whether they can control their impulses or not. These two things, I think, have modestly genetically contributed. But the rest is really social learning. And what can be learned can be unlearned or learned better. So definitely anyone can learn the techniques of resilience.
0: Well, and and I guess that really um, gets me thinking about something we were talking about right before we went on the air was, uh, you know, both of us being parents, and I'm sure many of the people listening to us being parents, how do we develop that resilience in children? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. And I'm sure there are a few parents out there who would love, although I think it's too late for me, but (laughs) I would love to hear your thoughts.
1: Well, you know, I have an 11 and a half year old and almost a six year old. So this is very much in my wheelhouse right now. This is pretty much my life. And I'm always looking at their behaviors through the filter of these seven ingredients and trying to see whether they're showing vulnerabilities or strengths on on these seven basic factors that make up resilience. As we'll see as our conversation unfolds, Elise, I think probably how people think is the most important determinant of how resilient they're gonna be. So for me, listening to how they verbalize their thinking Uh, the kinds of things they give vent to. Um, For example, I have a son who tends to be more on the frustration and anger side of things. That gets in the way of his emotion regulation and his impulse control, gets in the way of his problem solving. He's often now working against his goals rather than towards them. And I know uh, from the work that I've done that anger is an is a emotion that comes up when we have thoughts about violation of rights. I also know that I learned in my family of origin to scan for violations. So this is not a one-off. It's a habit that I developed, learned in my family. And now I've had the great privilege of handing that learning down to my son. So just being able to help him see um, that he That his thoughts are powering this feeling, and those thoughts may not be accurate, I think can be a very, very pivotal lesson and Just planting those seeds even with a five year old is is very feasible. Just the other day, um, he became very angry with his sister in in a very classic kind of um, scenario that I think many of your listeners will relate to. Uh, He came up to his sister. As I said, she's 11. He's five and said, Sissy, would you read this book to me? And then she did what an 11-year-old would do, which is look him straight in the eyes and nod her head in the beginning and then shake her head and said, absolutely not, and walked away flipping her hair. And this, this enraged him. And I could actually, out of the corner of my eyes, see that he bowled up his fist and he was running down the hallway. Um, He was definitely intent on doing some damage. And I stopped him and I said, you know, Julian, listen to me. Now, I, I have a map in my head. I know that if he's showing anger, it's because he must currently be having a thought about violation of rights. And I said to him you know, your sister's not doing anything wrong to you right now. Yes, she was rude, and I kind of fixed her with my eyes and said, and yes, she will read to you later, but she's not a reading machine where you just press play and she's expected to read. That's not her job. And you could see that really what I'm doing is pointing out to him there has been no violation here of any note, and instantly his anger ebbed away. So that's just one example of how we begin to plant the seeds um, in our children that what they think is the biggest determinant of how they feel and do, much more than the event. We're helping them see that there's leverage there. If they think more accurately about a situation, they're likely to end up being more resilient.
0: And you mentioned also prior to going on the air about an organization that you worked with in Canada that works with very young children, very young children. Could you tell us a little bit about that work?
1: Yeah, they're looking at preschoolers and, um, and, and kids who are in daycare even before their preschool age. And one of the things that we taught and developed with them was this idea of emotion radars that each and every one of us is learning in our family of origin how to scan the world some people are scanning for violation uh, my daughter tends to scan more for future threats so she gets anxious a lot of the time some people are scanning for how they may be violating the rights of another and that puts them at risk of of chronic guilt some are scanning for how they may lose standing in front of others and embarrassment is their, their big button push so Um, The the way that we we worked this with the, the group in Canada was they would get these preschoolers, little toddlers, basically to build a tower of blocks. Inevitably, at some point, this tower of blocks is going is to tumble, and then they would observe what emotion the kids showed. Some kids showed frustration, others, which means that they were focusing in on the fact that they didn't have the resources to build this. Others got angry because they saw this as unfair, somehow a violation of, of rights. Other kids got anxious because they thought the teacher might be mad at them for what they've done. So they're looking at the future threat aspects. A lot of the kids got embarrassed because they're focusing on how they may lose standing is their, their tower fell and other kids did not. You know, some experienced sadness because of the loss of their tower. Sadness is something that comes about through beliefs about loss. And then once the teacher was able to identify what emotion that child seemed to be developing as their pet emotion, and with this map of what thought, what leads to what emotion, they could begin to plant the seed that 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 thought may not be accurate, and they had uh, incredible results. They were also able to train parents to do this and work with their kids, Um, and they got fabulous results on emotion regulation, impulse control, basic problem solving, all the things that we'd want to see developed in our kids.
0: Is there... As you talk about that, I think, oh, my gosh, I hope there's a website somewhere as a resource or a book or something that parents can go to to learn more about this. What would you recommend?
1: I would say Google Reaching in, Reaching out. This is the the Toronto-based Canadian company, and they're doing an enormous amount around preschool age. Um, I think we have a lot um, as an organization to offer um, once you get into the school age. So once you're talking about 8-year-olds and up, that really is sort of our forte.
0: Okay. You know, as you were talking, I was also thinking about all the interesting studies that have been done on impulse control with kids or delayed gratification. Does that play into resilience as well or or not?
1: Yeah, it really does. You know, Angela Duckworth is one person who's done fabulous research in this area, uh, and she's coined the term, at least uh, for its psychological application, of grit. And I think most people are now becoming aware of this concept of grit, that ability to delay gratific- gratification. Um, you know, We're very fortunate that Angela came out of the same lab, did her PhD in the same lab that I did. And she's taken this concept, I think, of impulse control and grit kind of lines up with that. And developed it in, in an ingenious way and, and being able to generate very, very concrete skills to help kids do this. I work with my kids in this way too. I believe that impulse control, grit, um, the ability to lay gratification is absolutely essential. Walter Mischel, a famous psychologist, established this in the marshmallow study that many of your listeners will be familiar with back in the 1970s at Stanford. And just to refresh their memories, the researchers there took out a, a marshmallow out of a bag, placed it in, the, in before an eight-year-old kid and said this is your marshmallow if you want to eat it that's fine i'm going to leave the room run a couple of errands i'll be back in a few minutes the marshmallow is still here i'll give you a second one it's obviously a test of impulse control that ability to delay gratification they leave the room and they film and this film is priceless you can youtube this these kids want this marshmallow so badly but they want the second one they're doing everything they can to control their impulse to eat it. You know, they're reaching out for it, grabbing their hand with their other hand and pulling it away, blinding their eyes so they're not attracted to it. A lot of the kids are poking at it. You know, one kid, this is, is priceless. He looks around the room. No one's looking. He picks it up, licks it, puts it back down. All the research is, it was just note. Who ate the marshmallow? Who did not? It's a longitudinal study. They track these kids 10 years later. And on GPA, on SAT scores, they're now seniors in high school, and on parent, teacher, and peer ratings of, of their behaviors. On all five of those measures, the kids who could control their impulse of eight are doing better at 18. So this is a big one. And the the grit research has taken this and run with it. And just on an individual level, Um, with my kids. I I will do this a lot. Um, I will, my my daughter will be doing her math homework, and then she'll say, I I really need a break, Daddy. And I'll say, you know what, I'll tell you what, you can take a break now um, for five minutes. But if you wait another 10 minutes, you can break, take a break for 10. And I'll, I'll engage in any game that you want to play with you. And I'm just planting that seed that, you know, when you think you're done, you probably have another 10 minutes in you before you need that rest. I think these are critical lessons, and not just for kids. You know, we need to apply these lessons in our own lives as well.
0: Yeah, I'm also curious about the whole concept of optimism and how it relates to resilience and and self-efficacy and hardiness. Those are three terms that you hear a lot, and just wondering where they fit in as well.
1: Yeah, you know, historically, hardiness was the word that we tended to use for how we deal with adversity. Resilience took that kind of subsumed the concept of hardiness into itself and made that part of the resilience notion. So when we think about resilience now as psychologists, um, we're really thinking about how people deal with adversity uh, as part of the concept and that's where that hardiness piece comes in. When we distill out what resilience is rather than how people use it um, to overcome difficult situations, as in the case with hardiness, then we're starting to look at the, the the fundamental ingredients. We believe that there are seven that are primary. we mentioned those. And self-efficacy is really that that sense of mastery that we're going to be able to take care of ourselves. Now, Elise, an interesting thing about this, you would expect that if you're a good problem solver, so if you're doing, if doing well on causal analysis or problem solving, that third factor of resilience that you'd believe you have mastery in the world. But we often find that there's slippage there. Um, We find that some people who are actually very good problem solvers just don't believe they are. And what we see here is that what's intervening are very big iceberg beliefs Um, And these iceberg beliefs, we call them that because only the tip is really in our conscious awareness. Most of this belief system, large-scale belief about the world and how we are in the world, is beneath the level of the water in our unconscious mind. And they probably have um, self-defeating, self-esteem-sapping iceberg beliefs. I'm not adequate. I'm not good enough. I'm destined to fail. That that mean that even when they're doing well in the world, their self-esteem doesn't get informed by their good feats. So we are able to bring those icebergs out and then boost self-efficacy. Optimism is a fascinating one. Um, You know, literally 40 years of research has shown optimists don't do well. Uh, This is federally funded research primarily. So this is our tax dollars at work. I mean, of course, we should have known that pessimists don't do well. Um, but our research began to really track some of the liabilities that come along with over-optimism. So in one study, for example, we looked at um, cumulative GPA in college, and we looked at the the individual's level of optimism. What we found was that those who were very pessimistic weren't doing well and, in terms of their GPA, and that makes sense, that the more optimistic people were, the better their GPAs tended to be. But interestingly, we, we, we reached this inflection point, in optimism beyond which GPA actually began to fall. So we we began to see that over optimism was a liability and we've, we've been able to look at that same kind of trajectory across a number of different life domains like productivity and performance at work, the quality of our relationships and so on and so on. So optimism is important, but realistic optimism is the key.
0: Mm, That's interesting. Um... Can you share some examples, you did had some wonderful examples with your kids, can you share some examples with our listeners of how, how a, a resilient adult might respond to major setbacks or challenges
1: Yeah, there are several keys. The first is to really try to stay calm and focused, and that can be very, very difficult. Um, We know that there are these powerful emotion radars that get in the way, so knowing what your emotion radar is and your push point can help you stay calm. So for me, I know that when I'm getting angry, I probably should mistrust that anger. It's probably based on a mistaken belief about someone violating my rights. And if I actually get that belief out, and we can talk in a moment about how we do that, I'll probably see it's not the violation I thought it was. We also know that there are seven big thinking traps that get in the way, and we can talk about those in a bit as well. But there are seven big thinking traps that people tend to fall into, and they rob us of focus and impulse control. So understanding which of these seven you're most vulnerable to and when, you can prepare yourself so that you stay focused um, when you absolutely need to be. Problem solving, again, is key. So you want to be able to get to the root cause of the problem. You want to see all the causes of your problem. And you want to, in effect, do the serenity prayer. You want to be able to find those pieces of the problem that you can control and channel your resources towards those and try to come to serenity with those, th- those parts of the problem that you cannot solve. Unfortunately, a lot of us spend a lot of time agonizing over the pieces of the puzzle that we cannot control and funnel few resources to those pieces that we can. There's a very powerful thinking style called explanatory style that causes us to do this. So being aware of what your particular, you know, thinking style is around problem solving and being able to get around it, that's also really, really important. We know that people who um, remain resilient in adversities, they have a strong value system, And they remind themselves of that. So this actually plots their course of action quite easily. If you know what you should do, um, then you've got a a blueprint of how you should be acting in this adversity. And we also know that they stay positive, and that can be very difficult. Our brains are not wired for that, um, but staying positive is really, really key. And it sounds glib and it sounds like, um, yeah, but show me how. I can show you how. Um, But that's one that's really, really important. And then finally, really looking for a sense of meaning in everything that you're experiencing, both good and bad. What's the meaning in this for me? Um, How does this help my life mission or get in the way of it? And constantly connecting yourself to that bigger picture totally reframes the adversity. If your whole world is you and you're driving down the freeway and someone cuts you off, then that's a major catastrophe. But if your world is the world, a belief system that goes well beyond you, a sense of community, a big overarching sense of meaning, mission, and purpose, then getting cut off on the freeway is nothing. And this is the way I think that very resilient people are able to frame um, and, and keep in check the, their perception of the size of the adversity.
0: I'm just curious, as you were talking just then, I was thinking, you know there's been so much information recently about how obviously how technology is changing our world and some of the some of the negative ramifications of technology Do you, do you see any negative ramifications of technology with how much we're so involved with? with computers and phones and iPads, et cetera, in terms of how this can impact our resilience?
1: Yeah, and the areas that we are particularly interested in, certainly – not our area of expertise to look at how, for example, technology is altering the developmental trajectory of our children and their brain development. Um, There's been lots of work on this, and it's important work for anyone to read. In addition, I think it's amping up the needle on stress. Um, My dad um, would take four weeks vacation from work, and he was gone. I mean, there was no way for work to contact him. Um, when we were on holiday, when we were on vacation, that was it, so he had four weeks of uninterrupted great time we 're too nervous to do that now for one we can 't we 're carrying out devices with us at all times secondly we won 't take four weeks because we figure that during that time someone will realize we 're not necessary and we 'll get downsized so you know that there's' on that, the present fear of all of this kind of thing um yeah. you know we should take we should take um technology vacations. That's certainly true. But the area that we have looked at uh, most closely is how um, technology affects our perceptions of ourselves relative to others. There was a fabulous study done, not by us, but by a a group of researchers, I believe out of Denmark, who did the Facebook study, and not to demonize Facebook. There's a lot that's really great about that. Um, But because it's so big and so well known, it's often very well researched too. And what they found was that when they assigned people, and I mean randomly assigned people to spend different amounts of time on Facebook, the more time they were assigned, the more depressed they got at the end of the study. And when the researchers dug into why, it was because we're constantly evaluating ourselves against others. And no one posts anything bad on Facebook. Facebook is all wow. about, here I, here I am graduating. Here are my two children getting their merits from, you know, their, for academic excellence. Here is my son bringing home his you know athletics trophy. No one posts, you know, my son really sucks at math, thought I'd share. Um, So (laughs) everyone is putting forth their, their, you know, putting their best foot forward. Um, and we're believing that that's their real life. And when we compare that to our own, we realize that there are shortfalls And we know from the work that we've done, that when we have beliefs about loss, an ideal, real gap, a gap between where we think we should be, um, where we're told we should be and where we actually are, or a loss of sense of self-worth that is going to propel sadness. So I think there are some aspects of social media that are driving that, uh, because we're doing unfair comparisons.
0: You know, I saw that absolutely with my daughter in high school because I mean, she would be on Facebook, and she she'd come in and she would be depressed. I mean, she would see all what she thought were, you know, all the the you know important kids in high school on you know trips with each other or out on the lake together or at a party or what have you, and she wasn't experiencing those things. So she it was it and how do how does how does a parent best deal with that?
1: I think it's great to sit your kids down and, and talk about what this concept of Facebook is, that it's people's way of presenting the very best parts of their lives. Uh, I would actually sit with my daughter. I, we actually have a, a rule that she's not yet ready for Facebook. So at 11, we don't believe that that's something she should be doing. That's our own personal decision. But I would sit with her and, and do a Facebook-like activity. And I would say to her, can you come up? I want you to come up with three things that you think are your best attributes um, about your personality and about the way you are in the world and have her do that. What are the three of the best, most fun things that you do in your life? What are your three favorite things? And then say, you know, in the process, pointing out that that's actually really similar to what people are talking about on Facebook. It's just just that I didn't ask her about what's going wrong, and no one on Facebook posts about what's going wrong.
0: No, that's for sure. I want to go back to this idea of thinking traps or errors that we fall into. Can you share some of these with us and also talk a little bit more about iceberg beliefs?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are seven big traps that people fall into. Um, one of them is that when we get hit by a problem, we immediately look outside for blame. That's one that I do. I'm a blamer. I'm an externalizer. Um, and that's great because that means that my self-esteem is in absolutely mint condition. But the problem there is that I'm, I'm prone to a lot of anger because I'm being put upon by others. And it's really getting in the way of my problem-solving because I'm not seeing what's happening inside um, that I could take care of. And then some people tend to personalize. They do the exact opposite. They blame themselves instinctively. And and there are some causes that are going to be lying outside of themselves that they're going to miss. Um, And in addition, they're really dumping on themselves. There's going to be a lot of sadness, guilt, shame, embarrassment around that. Some people tend to magnify magnify and minimize. They magnify the the negative and they minimize the good. So over the course of a day, they'll tend to pay more attention to what went wrong. And this leads to sort of a chronic low negativity that really gets in the way of resilience. Um, and we can help people get around that, just become more even handed. We know that some people tend towards pessimism, sort of a cat- catastrophic chain of thinking. And I think most of your listeners would r- resonate with this, the idea of waking up at three in the morning with all this horrible stuff going through your head. The reality is that you know, when we say to people, Have you ever had that experience? Everybody says, yes, at least once. But when we say, have you ever had a time in your life when you woke up at three in the morning and you had visions of sugar plum fairies and rainbow-colored waterfalls and unicorns going through your head? And very few people say yes. And yet when we analyze the probabilities of that absurdly bad stuff and the absurdly good, they're pretty equal. We're just not very even-handed on this. So um, helping people get around that catastrophic thinking is is great as well. Some people overgeneralize. They take one event that happens in their lives and they create a big general rule about it. Um, I'm very guilty of this. I'm an externalizer and an overgeneralizer. So I'll be driving down the freeway and someone cuts me off. And the first thing that goes through my head um, will be he's a jerk. Um, you know, I've obviously taken this one experience with this person and made a great big global assessment of their personality. And he may not be. He may be father of the year for all I know. He may give 10% of his income to charity. I have no idea. And that kind of sense of overgeneralizing, while efficient and economical, um, doesn't create good problem solving because we're just not seeing the world accurately. And then some people expect others to know what they're thinking without having um, without having expressed it, and we call this mind reading. That's definitely a problem. And for others, it's emotional reasoning. It's, it's using changes in their emotions to tell them about the world. And this is why that's problematic. I could say to myself, I'm getting angry, so my rights must be being violated right now. But I could get angry on the basis of a mistaken belief about violation. So using my emotion um, as evidence of the... Of the um, of the world, is actually circular. Um, So, you know, we, we can help people identify these seven, understand where they're most vulnerable, and help them get around them. And, you know, interesting, just a very interesting story. I really came across this concept of emotional reasoning many years ago. I was a sophomore in college, and I lived off campus with a couple of friends, one named Tony, one named Andrew. Andrew was a very enthusiastic skydiver, and he was always trying to get us to go out skydiving. And um, I'm the kind of guy who believes that a very bold adventure is a beer and a book. I don't feel the need to jump out of a plane. Um, I feel very strongly about that. But but the other Andrew convinced Tony to go out, and they made plans to go out a month later. We're 18 years of age. you know. And I took Tony aside, and I said, you know, being a supportive and caring friend, are you really going to do this? And he said, yeah, I think I will. And I said, as a supportive and caring friend, what do you think the chances are you're going to die in a month? And I'll, I'll never forget, he looked me dead in the eyes, and he said, well, I don't know. There were probably 10 million jumps around the world every year and one or two fatalities, so I guess my chances of dying are one in 10 million, one in 5 million, something like that. And it really stuck with me um, because it was so logical and rational. And a month ticked by, and now it's the night before they're going to go out skydiving, and they're talking about it. And I took Tony aside and I said, really, are you going to do this? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, as a supportive and caring friend, What do you think the chances are you're going to die tomorrow? And I'll never forget it. He looked me dead in the eyes and he said, I don't know, about one in 10,000. One in 10,000, a month earlier it was one in 10 million. Had skydiving really become so much more dangerous? I don't think so, but I think what happened was that anxiety is a feeling that comes up when we have beliefs about future threat. And as this escapade became less future and more tomorrow, his anxiety went up, and then he used that, subconsciously, he used that increase in anxiety to falsely tell him this was more dangerous than he originally thought. And we humans are doing this around all of the big emotions multiple times a day, and it really does. It robs us of positivity. It robs us of happiness, and it robs us of resilience.
0: I, I, I'm stuck on something that I think I heard you say earlier, and I may I may have misunderstood, but did you say earlier that we're, we're sort of programmed through surviving instincts to be more negative about things.
1: We absolutely are. Um, Our brains are wired to scan for the bad. There's enormous survival value in our being able to anticipate something that could come along and harm us or even kill us and take us out of the gene pool. Um, there's not so much survival value in being pre- being able to predict something positive. If we get blindsided by something bad, it, c- it can take us out. But being blindsided by something good, it's like, oh, well, okay, thank you. I appreciate that greatly. So our brains are definitely wired to be more pessimistic and to be more in line with scanning for the negative. Now, what we see is when we start to go through an adversity, and most of us who are in the workplace experience this daily, um, just an enormous amount of change, an enormous amount of stress that we're being subjected to, incredible pressures to do more with less. And, And again, I can't emphasize enough, just the sheer pace of change. Um, our brains tend to go more negative, even more negative under those circumstances. I make the joke, least that the movie Jaws taught us that, you know, you go down to the beach and you yell shark, you get panic. If you go into an organisation and you will change, you see the same kind of panic that you see on yours. So, our brains just aren't wired to deal with this very effectively, and we've been able to develop, to develop, I think, very effective techniques that help people become just a little more even-handed around this. We, of course, we want to be able to be able to predict and intercept and take care of bad things that could be coming in our direction. Um, but life is much more than that. It, it's also about the positive, and we need to be embracing that as fully as we embrace the negative, And we don't. If I say to people, "When was the last time that you felt overwhelmed with frustration?" A lot of people look at me and say, "Well, what time is it now?" But if I <laughs> said to, people, you know, if I said to people, "When was the last time you felt overwhelmed by contentment?" And contentment is the is the counterpoint to frustration. It's the positive counterpoint to the negative of frustration, people look at me bewildered as if that question doesn't even make sense. We don't get overwhelmed with contempt. We might experience it occasionally, dabble in it, but we don't get overwhelmed by it. And it's because our brains tend to get in the way of our being able to fully embrace the positive in the same way that we fully embrace all aspects of the negative. So we're able to teach people to live in those positive moments, to live in them more fully, to embrace them more fully, to make them count, to treat them as an oasis um, in an otherwise desert of of stress or negativity and and fully reward themselves with those positive moments.
0: You know, it makes me think of something that I remember being surprised by, but I found it to be so true, and that is, you know, so many of us are working so hard toward a goal. And oftentimes when we actually reach that goal, it's kind of a letdown. It's like, well, this really didn't do as much for me as I thought it would rather than, you know, sort of enjoying the journey along the way. Um, I think that is sort of an interesting phenomenon as well.
1: It really is. It's almost like postpartum depression, Right
0: yeah um
1: and, and it's and it's interesting I, I think there are a few things that are coming into play in a situation like that firstly um it, particularly people who are ambitious um and i'll I'll do workshops live workshops with hundreds of people who are in leadership positions, and I'll say to them how many of you have a tendency to achieve and accomplish and complete one project and then immediately move on to the next without celebrating that and everybody raises their hands and in many ways it's that striving for continuous achievement that's got them into the leadership positions that they're in it's a great attribute but the downside is that it's a recipe for burnout we cannot continue at that kind of pace we need to take time out and reward ourselves uh, and, and in addition, I think um, this really feeds into this concept of iceberg beliefs, big beliefs we have about the world and how we should be in the world. And we've often learned the lesson that we shouldn't rest on our laurels, um, that we should embrace this this continuous work ethic. And sometimes those big iceberg beliefs, these rules about that we have about how we should be in the world, Get in the way of our really appreciating what we've been able to achieve, celebrating it fully, tucking it away, keeping it in mind, and then moving on to the next big thing.
0: You know, I I want to point out that in your book, The Resilience Factor, one of the things I loved about it was your appendix, um, which you call "Which which Adversities Push Your Buttons," and you also included a rating scale for each. So I just want to mention that to our listeners. I think it's so well worth (laughs) going through that rating scale and those adversities. Uh, Each situation where you score a four or five is an adversity for you. And as you look at the adversities that score four or five, you that the important thing to do is think about is what do those important things mean to you? What can you what can you figure out about the ones that you score four or five with? Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, you know, we know that these are these repetitive adversities that we face, and it might be dealing with authority or dealing with our extended family or a relationship with a neighbor or dealing with timelines or work life balance or financial hassles. Whatever it is they tend to recur and if they are recurring and we're not doing well with them again and again and again and again, it suggests to me that there are belief systems and thinking styles that are coming into play whenever we're placed in that adversity. And it's probably those thinking styles that are really getting in the way of our ability to conquer that. So understanding that these are vulnerable push buttons is the very first step. But then we want to take a look at how we're thinking when we're in those situations. And what I suggest here that we do is what I've come to call the spit test. And, and if you'll allow me, I can demonstrate what I mean by this. Now, if sure. we were to, excellent. If we were to do a thought experiment in two phases, I would ask that you vividly imagine that you're gathering up saliva in your mouth. Ask your listeners to do the same. You're gather, gathering up spit in your mouth, gathering up saliva, and then you swallow it. That's phase one. And then I'd like your listeners to vividly imagine that they're gathering up saliva in their mouth, and they're gathering it up, gathering it up. Now they spit it into a glass and they swirl that glass around while looking at the spit through the light, and then they drink it. Now, most people acknowledge that phase one and phase two are not the same. Phase one is okay, and phase two is absolutely disgusting. And the the reason for that is because when something is inside of us, if we pay any attention to it at all, and let's face it, how often do we think about our spit in the course of a day? If we pay any attention to it at all, we give it a whole pass. We give it a, an exalted status. It's part of us. We're okay with it. Once it's outside of us, we no longer want anything to do with it, and and we can be more objective with it. The same is true of our thinking. When these thoughts are rattling around inside of our heads, if we pay any attention to them at all, we just blindly accept that they're true. But if we can do the spit test, if we can say to ourselves, What's going through my head right now? What am I thinking right now? And get that out, write it down. Then we tend to see it for what it really is. This came up for me as recently as about a month uh, or so ago. I'm an anger guy, at least as as we've mentioned. um, I came back in from outside the house. My wife was seated on the sofa working on her laptop and I came in and I slammed the door and my wife just turned around to look at me and rolled her eyes and said, what now? She's so used to my being an anger guy. And I said, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe what our neighbor has done. And, you know, by the tone of my voice, she must have assumed that he'd kidnapped one or both of our kids. And, and she. What has he done? What has he done? And I said, he's done it again. He's gone and parked his car in front of our house. And even as I'm saying it out loud, I realize this is not the big violation at a 10, justifying my anger at a 10, that I thought it was. I'm basically doing the spit test for myself and getting these thoughts out. And and that can often, once we see them in the cold light of day, we're like, this is just not what I thought it was. And it's the same with my son. In that incident where he's bowling up his fist and running after my my daughter because she's refusing to read to him in that moment, I'm basically helping him do the spit test by saying to him, knowing that his anger must be caused by a thought about violation of rights and ballparking that it, it's his belief that he's entitled to his sister reading and just saying, look, she's not a reading machine and you can't just play, press play and expect her to read, that's enough of a spit test for him to bring him down to calm. So we want to use that 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 adversities checklist as a springboard to what am I repetitively thinking in those situations?
0: I, now, I'm leaping on to a different topic because I absolutely need to ask you this question. We have, we're fast running out of time, which I can't believe. It's gone so quickly, but... Uh, In one of your TED Talks, you referenced a study about federal employees being more resilient than people in other types of work, which... I was absolutely dumbfounded by Um, it I think for most of us it would seem to fly in the face of what most of us would believe believe considering the other factors that we usually associate with job satisfaction and how those probably aren't prevalent factors for a lot of federal employees can you tell us a little bit about why this is the case and and also share the story about the uh, the man who drove a tractor who decided to become a NASA scientist
1: yeah, absolutely. You know, when I joined the Brookings Institution um, in September of 2006, I was tasked with solving the very riddle that you have spelled out, and that was that if you look at the ten or so variables that lead people to be happy and satisfied in their jobs, um, basically federal government employees have none of them, and yet they tend to be more satisfied. This had been established by Brookings, and and that was pretty interesting to me. I, I that was a surprise. Um, and you know my knee jerk is to say, "Well, how resilient are they let 's <laughs> let 's look at that and see if that sheds any light uh, and my suspicion was. Um, based on any contact I'd had with the federal government, that they would tend to be less resilient, and they were not. They were significantly more resilient on each and every one of these seven factors that makes it up. And that, that finding has been supported ever since. We do ongoing research into this, and we are now 11 years on, and that finding remains as robust today as it did 11 years ago. So I was tasked with solving this, and I couldn't Until I had this very serendipitous um, dinner meeting with the gentleman that you referenced. And this guy named Steve was born in Waukegan, Illinois, a very frosty part of of Illinois. And he told me that, you know, he graduated from high school and he had good grades and got scholarship offers to college, but he just didn't feel ready. So he got a job working on local farms and it might have been repairing fences or plowing fields, whatever it might have been. He said, you know how it is, Andrew, you think you're going to do something for a year He said, five years later, I'm still sitting on this stupid tractor. And he said, one time I'm out there, it's the middle of winter and it's minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit, which he described as brisk. And he said, you know, in that moment, I realized I didn't need to do this job anymore. And in that moment, he decided he wanted to become a rocket scientist. And now he's a deputy director at NASA. And I said to him, you know, why NASA? Could have made a lot more money in a private sector organization. And he said, you know, he interviewed at all those places, but to be honest, NASA had a very good reputation and it was, and then he, you know, he he quipped that it was the only one of these organizations that said he wouldn't have to wear a tie to work. And I said, well, yeah, that's funny, but now you've got this deputy director status, you cash that in, go into the private sector, golden retirement, your family will never want for anything. And he said, I'll never do it, I'll never leave NASA. And he said, and here's why, because every morning, I wake up knowing that what I do contributes to the welfare of my country and the security of my nation. And it was then that I saw that his sense of contribution, his sense of meaning and mission was a protective shield for him. It gave him great job satisfaction and it boosted his resilience. And then we went out and did the research around this, Elise, and we found that if you ask people why do you stay in your jobs, they'll give you one of three answers. They'll say, I'm just here for the pay and the benefits, or I like the work, I like my colleagues, um, or so that's you know level one of sense of meaning, mission level two, or they'll say, I believe that what I do makes for a better world, makes for a better community, contributes to my organization. And for each step up, in that level of connection, we see greater job satisfaction and we see greater resilience. So we've come to believe that having that sense of meaning, mission and purpose in life is one of the greatest wellsprings of resilience, one of the most important things that we can endow in our children, one of the most important things that we can find for ourselves. What is your mission? What do you want to achieve? Where is the meaning in your life? How can you contribute meaningfully? You find that and almost everything else will take care of itself.
0: What a wonderful note to conclude our discussion on. Thank you so much, Dr. Chate. This has been wonderful. So appreciate your time tonight. And uh, I highly recommend both Mequilibrium and the Resilience Factor to our listeners. Thank you. Thank you,
1: Elise. It's been a wonderful time. And thank you to your listeners for joining in.
0: And I want to, in closing, thank not only Dr. Chate, but also the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College for sponsoring our show, and hope you will tune in next month, Tuesday, December 5th, for our conversation with Dr. Wendy Warner. Until then, we want to say good night and stay well. Thank you.